Well, if you would open up your Bibles now with me to the book of Lamentations, chapter 2. And if you're joining us for the first time tonight, or this is your first Wednesday night in a while, we just completed a series of Bible studies on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and now we are back into an expositional study in the Old Testament tonight, currently in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 2 this evening is where we will begin. And Father, we do thank you this evening, Lord, that you are the answer, Lord. You are the one that leads people out of bondage and into freedom that's in Christ. And whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Lord, we pray this evening that we would understand, Lord, from your word, Lord, things that we are to apply and things that we are to avoid, things that we are to run after and things we're to run away from. Lord, speak to us this evening in Jesus' name, amen. What happens to a nation when it turns its back on God? What occurs when a culture becomes corrupt and begins to call evil good and good evil? What takes place when a society seeks to dismiss the existence of God from its consciousness? And what will be the eventual result of a people that pursue idolatry in every form. Studying through the book of Lamentations, we find answers to those very questions. There comes a point and a time in a nation when they have overlooked, taken for granted the long suffering of God and will experience the judgment of God. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, it says this, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The writer of Proverbs was none other than King Solomon, who was the son of King David. And being raised in the kingdom, Solomon knew what would make the nation great. And he also knew what would cause the nation to unravel. For the Lord had warned his people long in advance. Every king was supposed to have the law of God in his possession and to read it consistently. They knew what it said. And when a nation began to drift away from God, when they rebelled, God was gracious. I mean, he sent prophets like Jeremiah to plead with the people and to warn the people. But so often... They would not listen. In his assessment of the risks to any society that tries to live without God, former White House assistant Chuck Colson said this, quote, in a society that begins free-floating discussion, certainty evaporates. After a while, nobody is sure of anything. It introduces relativity, so to speak, in human affairs and also eternal affairs. You cannot be sure. There's no such thing as truth. Everything is equivocated. Everything is subject to contradiction, close quote. To quote King Solomon once more, he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, that which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. In other words, what has happened will happen again. The fate of other nations in history past can be the fate of our nation at the present time. Jim Bramlett said this. He said, here in America, we are a proud and powerful nation, but it's alarming to think of the empires that have gone before us. They have been reduced to rubble by the same forces that prevail in our country today. History reveals several factors 
that have appeared in great civilizations of the past that have led to their decline and their ultimate demise, such as increase in lawlessness, loss of economic discipline, rise in bureaucracy, decline in education, weakening of cultural foundations, loss of respect for traditions, increase in materialism, rise in immorality, decay of religious belief, devaluing of human life. One man that wrote on this particular subject said many of the empires that crumbled had maybe three or four of these things that are on this list that caused them to come apart. But he said in America, all 10 of these are present right now. Take the Greek civilization as an example. One historian observed that in philosophy, in warfare, in early sciences, in poetry, in grace, in manners, in rhetoric, the Greeks excelled the civilizations that preceded it. No other race ever produced for such a brief period of time so many brilliant individuals as did the Greek people at the height of their glory. And in ancient Greece, it became one of the highest civilizations to ever exist. And the early Greeks, they held to a very strict code of purity. Interestingly enough, at one time, homosexuality was a capital offense. In Greek arts, arts and literature, the centerpiece of their society, you know what they celebrated? The virtuous man. Loyalty to the state and to neighbors was among the highest callings. Self-sacrifice, examination, they were the norm. They had two ancient sayings that were marked on the ancient temple of Delphi, and it said this. The first was, know thyself, and the second was, nothing in excess. That was their motto. However, in all of their advancement, they had no understanding of the one true and the living God. And in turn, it destabilized their success. And what followed was the decline in virtue, in morality, and it swept through the culture like wildfire. Absolute truth no longer existed. Greek society began to falter and drift. Paganism, idol worship prevailed. And despite all of their knowledge of democracy, their respect for the Republican institutions of government, their, their complex understanding of the principles of constitutional government, no stable political institutions were ever created in Greek society. Materialism, sexual immorality, and self-absorption took the hearts of the Greek people. Homosexuality became glorified. The stage, the arts, that was once a hallmark of a noble Greek character, became lewd, became violent. It lacked values. The once great culture became stuck in a succession of civil wars. And years later, Greece was then conquered by Rome. Ultimately, Greece wasn't destroyed by Rome, but by its own moral collapse. But then came the Roman Empire. And they took over. And in the beginning... It was said that a typical Roman citizen was virtually incorruptible. In the beginning, the strength of Rome, it was said, lay in the political structure and the strong families. Both were governed by the concept of what they called the high old Roman virtue. Romans believed strongly in earnest, tenacious, well-disciplined, frugal, self-sacrifice, duty, honesty, and honor. It was all important to them, but there were many during that time, that were observing Rome's rise to power and they feared that they would be overcome with their own success, their own power, and their own wealth. That they would no longer have control, but instead they would cast off all restraint and society would destroy itself. And immorality became commonplace, involving adultery, homosexuality. It destroyed Roman families by the untold thousands. Roman citizens, they lost interest in piety, in dignity, and focused on day-to-day -day survival and instant gratification. Does that sound familiar? Three important trends marked their moral decay, and they were as follows. The rise of immorality, the decay of religious belief, and the devaluing of human life. You look at the book of Lamentations. You see what happened to Israel. You look at our nation and you see what's happening currently. 
Do we assume that history won't repeat itself? That somehow we'll escape that even though all of these things are present among us? Look at what the word of God says and listen what happened to God's people. People who knew the true and the living God who experienced his power and his glory and saw his miracles. Look what happened to them. It says in chapter two, in verse one, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He he cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel, and he didn't remember his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down on his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In chapter one of Lamentations, we observe the mourning of the devastated city of Jerusalem. But in chapter two, we now see the cause behind the devastation and mourning of Jerusalem. In chapter one, you'll notice Israel or Jerusalem was referred to as the widow, the widow of the Lord. But in chapter two, she's referred to 12 times as a daughter, the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Judah, the daughter of Jerusalem. I also want you to make note when you study through the Bible and especially through the Old Testament, when you see the word Zion, that is in reference to synonymous with Jerusalem. When you see the word Jacob, that is synonymous with, connected to the nation of Israel. Jacob was the founding father, as it were, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Thus, often Jacob is referred to as Israel and Israel as Jacob because his name was eventually changed from Jacob to Israel. Just keep that in mind when you read through the Bible because you might be saying, Jacob, like Abraham's son? No, the people that came from them. But notice also, it says here that concerning the daughter of Zion, she was covered with a cloud, enveloped with a cloud. In the past, the cloud for the nation of Israel was a reminder of God's covering over his people. When they came out of Egypt, it says in the scriptures that the Lord led them as a cloud by day And he was over them as a pillar of fire by night. The cloud was a reminder of God's presence among his people. The the cloud was a representation of God's glory among his people. But now it says that the cloud is pictured as dark, like a storm cloud, frightening, ominous, enveloping the people. A storm was coming in the form of judgment. It also says here that the Lord forgot his footstool. He chose not to remember his footstool. In Psalm 99, verse 5, it says, exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. In Psalm 132, verse 7, it says, let us go into the tabernacle, his tabernacle, and let us worship at his footstool. Coming into the tabernacle or the temple to worship was the equivalent of coming to the feet of the Lord. But now, because of their sin, God chose not to remember. And as a nation where they had formerly been raised up, they were now brought down. You'll also notice the word anger, God's anger. The Hebrew word for anger is in the opening verse of this chapter, and then we find it at the end of the chapter as well. And in between those two bookends is the judgment of God poured out on a nation that rejected him. In verse three, it says, he has cast us off in his fierce anger, every horn of Israel. He's drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire, devouring all around. He's standing like an enemy. He's bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Here we see an unfamiliar picture of the Lord, not fighting for Israel, but standing against her. 
He is not defending her, but he's actually opposing her. He is not an ally. He is an enemy of Israel at this point. And the reason, as we've stated previously, it was because Israel turned away from God and worship false gods. And now the Lord stood in opposition to them. There are many people today who are still at war with God. Yet God has sent his son in order that they no longer have to be at war with him, but can be at peace with God. But Israel chose to turn from God, and thus they were now on the opposite side of the Lord. In verse 5, it says again, the Lord was like an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up all her palaces. He destroyed her strongholds. He increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He's done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. And in his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. In the destruction of the city, through Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and especially the temple, as in verse 6, the temple was called the place of assembly. That is where God would assemble with his people, receive their sacrifices and offerings. And yet now the appointed feasts, which were those times of fellowship with God and celebration in his presence, and the Sabbaths, which were appointed days of rest, were no longer a part of the people's lives. One of the reasons for the 70-year Babylonian captivity that Jeremiah prophesied would come and did come was because of the violation of God's commands, one of which was maintaining and keeping the sabbatical year. Not just for the people, but for the land of Israel, which was God's land, ultimately. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week a day of rest for the Hebrew people under the Mosaic law. But the law also spoke of a sabbatical year, which would give the land its rest. And the Lord even warned his people, again, long in advance. Sometimes you can just read the scriptures and think, man, God is just, just flies off the handle. He's got a short fuse. He just judges them immediately. Wow, this is unprecedented. He's so angry in the Old Testament. You don't understand. There are hundreds and hundreds of years that lead up to the judgment of God and warning upon warning upon warning. Years go by before God moves in this way. But listen, all the way back in the book of Leviticus chapter 26, verse 33 through 35, this is what it says. God warning his people, I will scatter you among the nations and I'll draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths. And as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and it'll enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. God warned him long in advance. Say, listen, if you don't give the land its rest, it will get its rest. And here's how it's going to happen. I'm going to remove you from the picture. I'm going to take you out of that land and I'm going to place you, I'm going to disperse you in your enemy's territory. And you know what's going to happen? The land will get its rest. And 70 years, it rested. God got back what they tried to rob from God. God said, that's my land. I gave it to you to use. And he didn't listen and so I removed you from the situation completely and it got the rest that it deserved, as I said it would. Sadly, Israel failed to observe the sabbatical years. They continued cultivating and harvesting their land on the seventh year, just as they had in other years. And here's the thing. Do you know why God wanted the land to rest? First of all, just to let it rest and recultivate. But something else happened. In the seventh year, they were to live off what they had the previous year. It was an opportunity to trust God to provide and they didn't trust God to do it. No, we're not, we, need, we, need to keep, we, need keep, we need to keep cultivating this thing because I don't know. This was, they didn't trust God and they didn't obey God. 
And that, that often is the case. When you don't trust God, you're not going to obey him because I don't think he's going to come through. So I'm not going to wait. I've been waiting a long time for a husband. Some woman says. I'm tired of waiting. So I'm just going to find somebody. They have a pulse. You know, I mean, we're good. You, you know what I mean? I'm kidding. But you understand, it's like we just want to push right through it. We don't want to, we don't want to wait on God. I'm, do, I'm done waiting. As a result of not giving the land its sabbatical rest and other sins, what God did is he brought the Assyrians and the Babylonians against Israel. And both in the north and the south, they were removed from the land. In verse 7, notice now, as the destruction takes place in the city, certain aspects, and I'll highlight them for you, things that were destroyed, that at one time were a blessing among the nation. The Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He's given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They've made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion, he stretched out a line and he's not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and the wall to lament. They languish together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He's destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Israel's sin affected the entire city, the altar, the sanctuary, the walls. I mean, this place of, of worship desecrated, the sanctuary that was this place of fellowship with God no longer existed. I mean, it was just obliterated. The walls that were for protection to keep in what was good and to keep out what was bad. There's no more, the walls are just gone. The gates that were to be guarded, they're, they're destroyed. Everything is completely wiped out. And when it says here that the Lord, you'll notice, stretched out a line, it's a phrase that formerly was used to describe the building of the temple. He stretches out the line. He's measuring what he's about to construct. Here it's used differently now that he stretches out a line to measure off what he's going to destroy and wipe out in the destruction of the temple. And in the midst of all of the rubble and all of the, everything that's just been just destroyed. There's no vision from the Lord. The prophets aren't hearing anything. They had long forsaken the Lord. They had long prophesied out of their own heart rather than the word of the Lord. And so they had nothing to say. No vision. The Bible says for lack of vision, the people perish. And they had, and they did. And the only thing that the people could do as it says here, was to bring upon themselves sackcloth, ashes, and throw dirt on their heads. In verse 10, it says here, the elders, the daughters of Zion, they sit on the ground and keep silence they throw dust on their heads and they gird themselves with sackcloth and the virgins of Jerusalem, they bow their heads to the ground. What a pitiful picture this is of God's people, but this is what they had been reduced to. There's nothing else for us to do but throw dirt on our heads and wear sackcloth. By the way, when you read this in scripture, putting on sackcloth and rolling in the dirt and putting it on your head and ashes upon your body, it was an outward sign of grief. It was an outward demonstration of complete and utter inward grief. You were so broken. It's all you could do. And then it goes on to say in verse 11, now it seems that the prophet is observing all that had transpired. And he says, my eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets. They say to their mothers, where's the grain and wine? And they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city and their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. 
How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What, what shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread as wide as the sea, and who can heal you? Now picture this. Jeremiah had prophesied this day would come. He had warned them for years, and they didn't listen. And now they're suffering the consequences and he's walking through the rubble and he's seeing people with dirt on their heads and he sees children dying and he, he sees what, what has happened and he doesn't even know what to do. He said, all I can do is weep for the people. My eyes are filled, my heart is troubled. I'm throwing up when I look at what happens and I see the devastation of what sin brings. My heart is broken. My, my eyes are weeping. Do you ever have that feeling? Have you ever had the feeling when you walk through this world and you see the consequences of sin, does it ever break your heart? Does it ever cause you to weep? Does it ever cause you to just feel sick to your stomach when you see what's happening in this world? Does it ever bother you? Does it ever bother me? I hope that it does. I hope that we're moved with compassion. That we have hearts that would weep. Jeremiah asks a very important question here. At the very end of this, verse 13, he says this, and I marked this in my Bible. He asks the question, who can heal you? I mean, when Jeremiah looks at it like, he really doesn't know. Who, who could heal you in the midst of all of this mess that you created? Look at this. Who can, who can put this back together? This is shattered in a million pieces. I don't even... Who could do that? I don't, let me think about it for a second. I don't know anybody offhand who can heal you. And I thought about that question today. And it's a sobering question to ask. Who could take such a disastrous situation to which all who are looking on, seeing the damage would say, it is hopeless, it's irreparable, it can't be done. Who can heal you? There's only one person, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Who can repair and heal the damage of a broken heart? Who can mend someone who has been scarred emotionally? Who can, who can do that? Jesus, he's the great physician, the Bible says. The Bible tells us, regardless of how bad the circumstances might be, how bleak, how impoverished that Israel was, in Psalm 147, verse three, it says concerning our Lord, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Are you brokenhearted tonight? Are you wounded? Come to the one who can heal and mend. What about Psalm 38, verse 18? It says, not only can the Lord heal the brokenhearted, but the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves such as have a, who are crushed, crushed in spirit. If you're crushed in spirit, he's looking for you tonight. You're, you're the person he's looking for. You ever notice that about Jesus in ministry? He always looked for people who needed him. You just read through the Gospels. Do you ever, you ever observe that? Even his enemies knew that. That's why they put the man with the withered hand in the temple area, in the synagogue. You know why they did that? Because they knew Jesus was going to come in. And they knew that when he showed up, where's the withered guy? I'm going to go minister to him. He looks for those people. They knew it. And if that's you, he's looking for you. Who can heal you? Who can heal your marriage? Who can heal your child? Who can, who can do that? Only Jesus. But here's the good news. Jesus can do it. He goes on to say in verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They've not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. All who pass, they clap their hands at you. They hiss, they shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. And they, this is what they're asking. Is this a city that's called perfection of beauty? 
the joy of the whole earth, this place, this place is a dump. It's basically what the people would say when they walk by and see the ruins of Jerusalem. This, on your right-hand side, the beautiful city. No, that's not it. On your left hand, no, that's, where did it go? It's not here. It's gone. And not only that, all your enemies, verse 16, they've opened their mouth against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth. They say, we swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we've waited for. We found it, we've seen it. I mean, what a, look at what he describes here. First of all, the prophets, they're just, they're speaking false things to you. It's not true. They're deceptive. They haven't uncovered your iniquity. They don't talk about your sin. I'm not gonna talk about that. And listen, when Jeremiah was prophesying, they're prophesying there were many false prophets who were saying the exact opposite thing that Jeremiah was saying. The exact opposite. And they were applauded. They were paid. They were welcomed. The people loved those guys, loved those false prophets. They are something. And, and they had a lying spirit in their mouth. I mean, they just kept prophesying things that weren't true. They said, hey, listen, you're not going to Babylon and then when they eventually went to Babylon, they said, they're going to bring you back from Babylon. And it was all lies. They said what the people wanted to hear, not what they needed to hear. And it was delusional. I find it interesting that these false prophets, this, this just stands out to me. They have not uncovered your iniquity. They haven't talked about your sin. Well, why? Because how many people feel super uncomfortable and I don't want to do that. That might mess up my position or empty out the church. So I'm not going to say it. Listen, there's some people out there. It's not so much what they are telling you. It's what they're not telling you. That is very interesting. False prophets. Envisioning false prophecies. The, you know, the Lord, I just, mm, I don't think so because it doesn't say that. So... I disregard what you say. And of course, the enemy saw the opportunity when God's people were crushed and began to curse them, gnash at them. And why did all of this happen? Verse 17, notice the Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word which he commanded in the days of old. He's thrown down and has not pitied. He has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. Th this, is, this is what God said would happen and you doubted it. You didn't believe it. You ran contrary to it, but eventually it came to pass and it has been fulfilled. In the midst of all of the chaos, in the midst of all of the grief, there is a call for repentance. In verse 18, Jeremiah said, their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall, the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Verse 19, arise, cry out, in the midst, or cry out in the night, at the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. What Jeremiah is saying to the people, he's telling them the only way out of this is repentance. That's it. There, there is no other way. You can't fix yourself. You can't heal yourself. You can't put it back together. You can't rebuild the walls and put the gates in place and rebuild the temple because you, you're, it's not going to happen. The only thing that is the road to reconciliation and restoration starts with repentance. And in that repentance, there is this, as he says in verse 18, crying out from the heart. And then in verse 19, the pouring out of the heart. And in the Hebrew, the heart is the place where one makes the choice and decisions. In the heart. It's not talking about the organ in your body pumping your blood. It's talking about the seat of your emotions, the heart. Verse 19 
It's the place where repentance is decided. You say, well, I want to try to fix it. I'm going to try to, listen, you can't. Stop doing that. Stop trying to do that. You're just, you are wasting your time. The only way it's going to change is if you say, God, I repent. I turn from this. I don't want to be this way anymore. God, change me from the inside out. I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm actually, want, I want to, I need your help. Listen, sometimes we want to keep people from getting to the cross. Oh, you'll be fine. Oh, you're good enough. You don't have to do it on your own. No, no. You have to come to this place where you're, you're face down and you realize without Jesus and without his help, I'm not getting in. I'm not going to make it. There's nothing that's going to be repaired. And let me just say to you, that is not a popular message. Not a lot of books being sold on that subject. But that's what the Bible says. It's this death to me. There is this glorification of self. There is this, oh man, I would say in our culture, the deification of self. It's all about us when really Jesus said, listen, until you get to the end of yourself, you're stuck. But what a glorious day it is when we realize, Lord, man, without you, I am nothing. <laughs> Oh, don't say that. You're really good on the inside. Actually, I'm not. I know me. It, it, this whole thing, man, this flies in the face of everything that we're told. Culturally, I mean, this, you're good enough. You don't know. That's just, they're just judging you. No, the Bible judges me. God's word makes it clear. And we just want this fluffy, you're good, you're fine, you're, hey, praise Jesus, you're not, what? Come on, you're not. I know a lot of people much worse than you. In fact, they're sitting next to you. I mean, you just, you realize, you know, so you're, that, that's what the world would like you to believe. We run the comparisons, we do the math, we think, well, you know what? Actually, now that I think about it, yeah, I, yeah, I'm good but I'm really not. And it's not until we come to this place of, I'm a sinner, and I mean a wretched sinner. Ooh, wretched. That's pretty harsh. Yeah. It's probably worse than that. That's all I could come up with. I need Jesus. And so he says, listen, pour out your heart. The people, at one point, the prophet said to the people, they were rending their garments. They, they were tearing their clothes as an outward sign of their brokenness, rending their garments everywhere they went. Oh, we're so broken. You know, oh, I feel so bad. The Lord said, stop rending your garments and rend your heart. I don't want to see you tearing your shirt anymore. It doesn't mean anything. Except in your shirt. What, what, it, what the Lord said, what needs to, is the heart. You can go through the outward motions. You can have the tears. But if there's not a decision made to rend the heart, listen, don't walk up that aisle. Don't, don't go up there on emotion. You do it because you're making a decision I'm, I'm, I want to change. I'm rending the heart, Lord. Do it, God. I see it for what it is. I agree. Jeremiah says, this is the only way out. In verse 20, he says, see, O Lord, and consider to, to whom you've done this. Should the women eat their offspring? I mean, this was part of the, God warned against this, that this would eventually happen. Disgusting. How Far, do, you, do you really think it would get to that point? It did. The children, they've cuddled. Should, should the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You've slain them in the day of your anger. You slaughtered and not pitied. You've invited us to a feast day, the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger, there was no refuge or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. So painful to see. In chapter three, there is a poetic description of what it was like to see Jerusalem in the state that it was in. And it says, 
I'm a man who's seen affliction. This is what I've seen. By the rod of his wrath, he's led me. He's made me walk in the darkness and not in the light. He's turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He's aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He's besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He's hedged me in so that I can't get out. He's made my chains heavy. Even so I cried and, and shout. He shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways He's with hewn stone. He's made my paths crooked. He's been to me a bear lying in wait like a lion in ambush. He's turned aside and my ways torn me in pieces. He's made me desolate. He's bent his bow. He set me up as a target for the arrow. He's caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I've become the ridicule of all my people, the taunting song all the day. He's filled me with bitterness. He's made me drink warm wood. He's broken my teeth with gravel, covered me with ashes. You've moved my soul far from peace. I've forgotten prosperity. Well, that sounds like a very difficult life. Does it not? Listen, the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard. The way of sin, oh, it's pleasurable for a season, but in the end, your, your, your teeth are broken with gravel. In the end, you're walking in darkness and not in light. In the end of it, you're, you feel like a dead man. You're alive, you're breathing, but inwardly, spiritually, you're dead in transgressions and sins. I mean, we are dead, the Bible says, apart from Christ. But I don't want to leave us there tonight. Look at what it says in verse 18. I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. He's at this point where he just says, I'm at the end. I don't know what else to do. Oh, please. Look at verse 19 and on down. Remember my affliction and roaming. The wormwood and the gall. Verse 20. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. We're about to turn the corner. He's eating gravel. He's living in darkness. He feels like a dead man. He is suffering the consequences of open rebellion against God. And he knows it. And he is coming to this place where hope is lost, strength is gone. And yet, he says in verse 22, this is what I recall to my mind, which gives me hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. I'm in the most hopeless situation that I've ever been in. And I'm in it because I, I did this to myself. I, I knew, this is, these are God's people, they knew long in advance. They knew they were in the condition they were in because of decisions they had made. And yet, it's like a light goes on. And suddenly, you recall to mind, I'm, I'm still here. And that is a direct result of God's mercy and God's compassion and his faithfulness and his love. Friend, if you find yourself in a hopeless situation, recall this to mind that it's through his mercies you're not consumed and that his compassions don't fail and that his mercy is new every morning and his faithfulness is great. Do, do you know that? Do you know that his mercy is, don't say your mercies are old every morning. Ah, so old. It says it's new. It's fresh. Like manna from heaven. It's, you just go out and it's there. Fresh mercy. The mercy that got you through today 
And the mercy that's going to be there when you wake up in the morning and the mercy is going to be, it just doesn't fail. His faithfulness is great. God, you are faithful. God, you are merciful. God, I'm still here. Lord, I have hope. (laughs) And then he says in verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, the soul who seeks him. And it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. And let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him and let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach for the Lord will not cast us off forever. Verse 32, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Listen, in this nation, it was as bad as it could get. Morally, spiritually, the families were devastated, the cities overrun with violence. And yet in the midst of all of it, there was hope, hope in God's mercy hope in God's compassion, hope in God's faithfulness, hope in him. And we have that hope. The Bible tells us that we have been begotten again to a living hope. That's what we have tonight. And hope for the believer is not, I hope so, but I don't know. Hope for the believer is an absolute certainty, a complete and total assurance. This is my hope. And that's what we have as believers tonight. So whether you're in a situation, a trial that you created, and now you're suffering the consequences of it, but you realize tonight, I want to pour out my heart and I, Lord, I want to be honest with you. I want to get right with you. That's the road out. Doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect and some of these things that you lost along the way, but, does, but God is good and God restores. And this room is full of people tonight who have been restored by God that had no business being restored by God. We all were unworthy of everything God's given us and we can all testify God has been so gracious to us. Man, hasn't he? And he can do the same for you. But many of us who have experienced the grace and the mercy of God, we also could testify we had to come to the end of ourselves and repent and turn from sin and God met us there. We didn't know how it was going to work out and what it was going to look like and if anything would ever come together, but but God has been good. And therefore we have hope. Or maybe you're just looking around the world and, and it's like, oh man, it's so hopeless. Jesus is the answer. We have hope. So, Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening that, Lord, your faithfulness is so great. Oh, what a good reminder that is tonight. Lord, your compassions, they don't fail. Your mercy, it's new every single morning, Lord. You give us what we don't deserve. But Lord, tonight, I just want to pray specifically for those who perhaps your Holy Spirit is dealing with. They've known better, and yet they find themselves now stuck. Lord, I pray that 
they would pour out their heart. There'd be a change of mind, change of direction, true, genuine repentance. Reconciliation with you and restoration. Lord, just let your spirit just minister to those specific needs tonight. And Lord, I'm so thankful how your word works. It just hits all those areas. Lord, you just, you, you're doing it, Lord. And so we ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us tonight? Perhaps you need prayer this evening. Maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken specifically to you in some area of what we've talked about tonight. Don't hesitate to come up after the service. We'd love to pray with you. Lift these things up to the Lord. I want to encourage you tomorrow when you wake up, actually before you go to bed, thank the Lord for the mercy you received. And when you wake up in the morning, thank you for the mercy that you receive. And just, he's so good. His compassions fail not. And walk in hope. Live with that living hope that you have. Let me also remind you once again, and we'll send out an email if you're on our email list for next Wednesday, 7 p.m. Pray that God would use that time to instruct, to encourage, really to enlighten the body of Christ on this particular subject that is all around us, affecting children, adults alike. And uh, may God help us in the day that we're living. And um, also want to remind you, uh, tomorrow, men, 6 a.m., for those of you that are part of the men's discipleship, by the way, praise to God, hallelujah, just can I tell you, I don't know if this is going to be the same tomorrow, but I'm trusting it is. 84 men in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know if that's going to be you know, tomorrow, but at least the first week, you know. So looking forward to being with you guys tomorrow as we continue to study the making of a man of God. And uh, what a blessed time that is. And may the Lord bless you tonight.